The International Olympic Committee has the honor of announcing that the Games of the 32nd Olympiad in 2020 are awarded to the city of Tokyo. Yeah! You might remember this moment. This is the moment of wild celebration that took place on September 7th, 2013, right after Jacques Rogg, then the president of the International Olympic Committee, announced that Tokyo had been selected as the host city for the 2020 Olympic Games. In video of that day, you can see and hear Japan's Olympic delegation overwhelmed with excitement, seven years out from hosting the world's largest celebration of sports, an event that would put Tokyo on the most central of central sporting stages. A lot has changed since then. Six years of preparation took place and then, with just six months to go to the start of the Games in 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic hit. It's a pandemic that derailed all plans and transformed the Tokyo Olympics from a once-in-a-generation opportunity, something people were genuinely excited about, to a Games that is now loathed by much of the Japanese public. This Friday, the Olympics will begin. And it will be a Games like none before it, with its host city, Tokyo, under a state of emergency, and COVID-19 still very much a threat to the public. From the Japan Times, I'm Oscar Boyd, and over the next two episodes, we're going to be looking at how we got here, and trying to tell the story of the long and bumpy road leading up to these Olympic Games. Joining me to do so is Japan Times contributor, Patrick St. Michel. Patrick, thank you very much for joining me today. And where do we want to start the story? Well, like all good stories in the 2010s, we actually want to go back several decades before to 1964. On the 21st of August, 1964, the sacred flame kindled at Olympia left for Japan. Nineteen sixty-four, and why do you want to start in nineteen sixty-four? That's when Tokyo first had the Olympic Games with the nineteen sixty-four Summer Games, which were actually held in the fall. It was an important Olympics for a lot of reasons. If you want to zoom out of Japan itself, it was the first games to be held in Asia, which is a very significant development. And even within the country, 1964 was seen as a pivotal year for a lot of things that are now just common across the country. Right, exactly. These games in 1964 were the ones which showcased new technologies like the Shinkansen, the bullet train. On regular runs between Tokyo and Osaka, nearly 500 miles, the bullet will keep the speed needle steady at 190 kilometers, about 120 miles an hour. Yeah, that first comes out of 1964. And, you know, there's lots of developments in Tokyo itself. The city gets revamped in preparation for a global audience turning to it. And this is important because up until this point, Japan had just emerged out of World War II, And this was kind of a recovery games, if you will, for the country. It was a chance to come back onto the global stage, say, world, come to Japan again. We're ready to sort of meet you once more, much better circumstances. And this is the new Japan moving forward. And I think it's a really important point in the, you know, the storytelling of modern Japan. These games are often held up as showing Japan's transition to a modern, technologically advanced country. 
and really foreshadowed its rise to becoming the world's second largest economy by the 1990s. But why, why did you want to start there in 1964 and talking about these recovery Olympics? How, how does that relate to the 2020 Olympics that are about to start? There's a lot of parallels between 1964 and 2020, the Tokyo Olympics. The 2020 Olympics were also originally proposed as a recovery games uh, of their own, even more explicitly, I'd say, than 1964. That's because it came together in the wake of the 2011 Great Eastern Japan earthquake and tsunami along with the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. So, and these these natural events coupled with this uh, nuclear incident are kind of akin to the sort of trauma and damage of Japan coming out of World War II for the 21st century. Mm-hmm. It's a very physically and mentally disastrous thing and kind of an epoch-shifting moment. And in order to try to help the country move on and recover from this disaster, the government thought, let's bring the Olympics for 2020 and use that as something that can once again bring a new Japan to the world. After the bid was proposed and even submitted, the public support for it here in Japan was pretty high. Some polls found it was around 67% um, in January of 2012. A long, long way from where we are now. So Tokyo's bid was made in the summer of 2011, just a few months after that devastating earthquake, tsunami and nuclear meltdown hit the northeast coast of Japan. Uh, There were initially five other competing cities, Istanbul, Baku, Doha, Madrid and Rome. Although Rome pulled out very quickly because the government there didn't want to finance such an expensive event. Baku and Doha then didn't make it to the candidate city phase, leaving Tokyo competing with just two other cities, Istanbul and Madrid, neither of which had hosted the Olympics before. And at this point in the bidding process, the big question kind of swirling around uh, Tokyo's candidacy for the Olympics was whether the Fukushima situation really was safe. So this is something that was especially pushed forward by, I would say, media outside of Japan, uh, which didn't always have the best sense of what was happening with the Fukushima disaster. But it was something that hovered over the entire process for Tokyo. To the point where Prime Minister Abe actually had to get stuck in with the bidding process and made a pledge that the situation in Fukushima was under control and posed no threat to Tokyo. San may have concerns about Fukushima. Let me assure you, the situation is under control. It has never done and will never do any damage to Tokyo. This was a claim that was contested at the time, both domestically and internationally. And actually, a couple of years down the line, former Prime Minister Junichiro Koizumi said that Abe had been lying when he said that the situation in Fukushima was under control. And even now in 2021, it's clear that the meltdown at Fukushima is a long way from being completely resolved. It's an issue that still definitely comes up. But at the time, Abe's speech did the trick. The International Olympic Committee has the honor of announcing that the games of the 32nd Olympiad in 2020 are awarded to the city of Tokyo. Yeah!
You were here in Tokyo at the time, right? What was the atmosphere on the streets? I do remember at the time, I was out in Shibuya at like 3.30, 4 in the morning, which was actually when they did make the announcement. And, you know, it's late. Most people have have made good life choices and were asleep at the time. They would wake up to the news. There wasn't any like mass celebration in like Shibuya scramble or anything. You know, I've seen like when the Japanese national soccer team qualifies for a world cup, people go bonkers. It was quiet, but there was kind of an excitement at the time that was especially captured the next day by local and international media. They would go around and just talk to people on the street. And just a lot of people were like, fired up kind of being like yeah tokyo 2020 let's go uh that is not a quote that is me (laughs) remembering what was said but you can look at the clips from this time and see a real like honest excitement and enthusiasm And it's an enthusiasm that was not just built on the Olympics alone, but also the fact that a couple of years earlier, Japan had also been awarded the 2019 Rugby World Cup. So all of a sudden, you had this decade that was going to end with the Rugby World Cup in 2019, the Tokyo Olympics in 2020, these two major international sporting events. And I think there was a sense that, you know, this was the decade where Japan really would recover from the economic malaise which had followed since the bubble bursting back in the 90s and that this was the time that the international spotlight would swing back round to shine directly on Japan. And that the country would use this newfound attention as a way to bolster its tourism industry, which became an especially important focus for the country when uh, Abe uh, made it part of his Abenomics plan, uh, I believe in 2012, It was, you know, by the end of the decade, they wanted millions upon millions of people coming into the country. And the Olympics, I think, were a good, they were a good way of drumming up even more excitement for something that was already in motion, kind of transforming Japan into this this country where the world comes. And the Olympics are the crown jewel of that approach. We'll be back after this short break. The 2020 Olympics is awarded to Tokyo in Buenos Aires on September 7th, 2013. And it's a hugely celebrated occasion. But where do you want to go next in the story of the Tokyo Games? After a little bit of enthusiasm and sort of just excitement, sort of a honeymoon period for what the Olympics could be for Tokyo... The organizers of the games hit their first set of hurdles, and it kind of begins the first feelings of, oh, this isn't going to be as smooth as we thought. And that starts really with the stadium, the national stadium. Of course, this was the first big controversy to hit the 2020 Olympics, because as part of the bidding process, Tokyo had really hammered home this idea of having a very compact games. But in 2013, the proposed design for the new national stadium was unveiled. It was by British Iraqi architect Zaha Hadid and had been selected by a committee led by the Japanese architect Tadao Ando. 
And if you look at the proposal now, you can see all the concept pictures. It's this very iconic spaceport bike helmet looking building. But it very quickly came under fire for being far too big, far too expensive and out of sync with the major Jingu neighborhood it was due to be built in. What I remember from that time was definitely the price aspect being really hammered home by critics as just like, this isn't what we expected. And for the next couple of years, really, there was no solution. It was kind of a back and forth trying to figure out, oh, how do we get the cost down, but still make this sort of grand space age-ish stadium a reality. But by the summer of 2015, Abe, still prime minister, he announced that the stadium design first proposed would actually be scrapped. Right, and a big part of that was the price tag, as you said. I think it had doubled from the original estimates to a price tag of approximately 252 billion yen to complete the construction of the stadium, which is about 2.2 billion US dollars. So hugely, hugely expensive to construct this new stadium. Those are not compact numbers, folks. Absolutely. As you said, that stadium design was scrapped, but then a new design was created by the Japanese architect Kengo Kuma that was chosen in December 2015. But the kind of problem with this was that that stadium, the original Zaha Hadid Stadium, had been promised to the Rugby World Cup. And because of the scrapping and the redesign, um, it meant that the stadium would not actually be finished in time for the, the finals in November 2019 for the Rugby World Cup. Tokyo had been seen as this quite safe pair of hands, I think, for hosting the Olympics. And I think that introduced the first elements of doubt as to just how organized the Japanese were at this point. Exactly. And this is when those concerns that were that are always kind of creeping on the edges of Olympic discourse about like, is this worth it? Is this not going to just be a major pain for our city? That's when it kind of comes into view for a lot of people, especially Japanese people. We kind of see why Rome pulled out so quickly of their bid, because suddenly this quote unquote compact games was ballooning up um, with this two year long snafu that not only kind of like disrupted a really cool design but then also threw a bunch of other things into peril right and the scrapping of the stadium wasn't even the only controversy to hit the games in the summer of 2015 yeah in the summer of 2015 a lot of the initial olympic aesthetics and visuals were kind of coming in and one of the key ones was the logo for the olympic games which was designed by kenjiro sano And it was first made public in July of that year, July 2015, uh, to kind of describe it to you. So what you got is you have a sort of a set of shapes that vaguely look like a T um, with a red circle, the rising sun. You got Tokyo 2020 written underneath and the Olympic rings at the very bottom. It's very modern, very avant And also potentially very stolen (laughs) because almost immediately a plagiarism scandal emerges uh, saying that this logo looks quite a bit like a a logo used by a theater in Belgium, uh, which has the very similar sort of like dissected like letter, Mm. a T-like thing in a circle. 
And, you know, when you look at them next to each other, as I am right now, yeah, I see where those plagiarism calls come from. And so I I think it was the designer of that theatre logo that came forward and said, hey, this looks quite a lot like my work. And I think over the next couple of months from July, when that logo was launched up until September, it just kind of ballooned into a bigger and bigger controversy, leading to not only the stadium being scrapped in summer of 2015, but that initial Tokyo 2020 logo being scrapped. Um, and just as a new stadium had to be designed and Kengo Kuma stepped in to do that, a new competition was launched. To, it was actually kind of crowdsourced from various Japanese designers. I think it was a much more public, publicly open competition. Yeah, and they opened that up to the general public, a call for logos, and we get a new logo, the one that is used for uh, the games that are about to start still in use. Uh, That's unveiled in April 2016. It's kind of a more of a circle, a lot of blue and white, kind of a more traditional take on what an Olympic logo is. I'm curious, Oscar, which do you prefer? I like the old one. Really? I like the T. T for Tokyo. Easy to understand. (laughs) (laughs) I remember there was like a minor like internet controversy at the time, like some 7-Eleven store they started designing their like Oden menu to look like that. They would take the like daikon because I guess it vaguely looks like the weird gold triangle in the corner of the logo. And they kind of did it like that isolated in that position with like Oden 2020 or something written under it. It was great. (laughs) I think everyone got angry. (laughs) So we have these two Olympic related controversies going on in the summer of 2015. But despite those making headlines, they didn't seem to pose any major threat to the Olympics, I don't feel. And much of the rest of the preparation was going ahead as planned. The building works that had started were on schedule and looked like they'd be on time for 2020. And something else happened around that time that's important to these games. In the lead up to the Rio Games, it was announced that five new sports were going to be added to the Tokyo Olympic roster. And these were baseball slash softball, skateboarding, surfing, sport climbing and karate. And those are those were selected in large part because of their popularity here in Japan, of course. So kind of not only appealing to younger people, but also making sure that the domestic crowd here would be well engaged with the events when 2020 really did roll around. Right, exactly. Baseball is obviously massively popular here. Karate is a Japanese invented sport and there's there's pretty good surfing and climbing culture here as well. I'm not so sure about skateboarding, but that definitely appeals to kind of the younger audience. I think the Olympics were definitely trying to broaden their appeal with these games. And these sports were actually rubber stamped by the IOC in Rio during the 2016 Summer Olympics uh, that were taking place there. And it was at Rio that we also got the first proper public display of Tokyo 2020 in action with the handover ceremony. This is a really important pivot point for Tokyo 2020. At the closing ceremony of the Rio Games, there was a handover ceremony where basically Tokyo would be on the clock. They would get a little chance to sort of flex their cultural know-how 
on the world stage offer a preview of what people could expect in four years. And during this little ceremony, we got a lot of, we got a lot actually. At first, you know, we had Tokyo governor, uh, Yuriko Koike. She was there in kimono, waving a flag, you know, kind of, she seemed like she was going to be the representative. Right. So she received the Olympic flag. I believe it was from, it was the mayor of Rio who then passed it to Thomas Bach, the president of the International Olympic Committee, who then passed it on in kind of symbolic gesture to uh, Eureka Koike, governor of Tokyo. But that was just the beginning because then we get the proper showcase. And I think this is a very important thing to stress. One of the like things that people in Japan and even outside of the country were really thinking about hard after Tokyo won the bid was, what's the opening ceremony going to look like? Uh, Japan is a pop cultural powerhouse, anime, video games, movies, you name it. And people were really excited and curious what they were going to do. And this was the first preview of it. And they smashed it out of the park. As our performers enter the arena Um, It opens with the Japanese flag emerging out on sort of the big stage of the arena. It's kind of ushered in by people on special mobility suits who kind of like drag the flag out. Yeah, these were the glowing orb people. The glowing orb people. The glowing orb people uh, dressed up in origami dresses and they were all driving these kind of high-tech personal mobility devices into the center of the arena floor Q video package because we get this little highlight reel this little stylized uh, jazz accented shout out Shina Ringo package that's sort of mixing athletics we get shots of Japanese athletes doing their thing, mixed with uh, pop culture references. You'll get a fencer followed up by a Hello Kitty waving pom-poms. You get a swimmer and then the famous soccer anime character, Captain Tsubasa, like just blasting a shot into the goal. Um, It's really well done. Highly recommend you watch it. Link in the description. Absolutely. And it all leads up to the most famous and kind of memorable moment of the whole thing, which is Prime Minister Abe getting into his car from the uh, national diet, being taken to the center of Shibuya Crossing. He pulls out a red hat and he kind of like does a video game flash where he transforms into a globally renowned plucky plumber, Mario, Super Mario. And he uses a warp pipe to go from Shibuya to Rio, you know, the magic center of of the earth, through the center of the earth. Um, If you watch the, like the Olympics uploaded an official YouTube version, like, and they have their commentators over it. Like they have this British guy who's like losing it at this point. (laughs) He's like, Oh, my super Mario. Like, and he can't, like he can't even keep a straight face. So the whole thing culminates with, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe emerging into the center of the Rio Olympic arena, dressed as Super Mario. The Super Mario suit is whipped off him in a moment, revealing Prime Minister Shinzo Abe underneath, holding a red ball to symbolize uh, the Japan Rising Sun flag. And this is kind of the highlight of the entire closing ceremony of the Rio Olympics. And yeah, as you said, it it did smash it out of the park. It was incredibly creative. It was fun. And it showed... 
I think everything Japan wanted itself to look like and be for the Tokyo 2020 Games. I think in the immediate aftermath, people were kind of just stuck on the Abe is Mario thing. It kind of just became a big thing on Twitter, you know, just a really easy meme. Things were kind of a little bit goofing on it. But like, one, people kept talking about that. And two, everything kind of surrounding it was also really well done. From the video package to afterwards, there was kind of a a dance number featuring a lot of like light up uh, geometric shapes and dancers. It was really well done. Finding a good balance between kind of this idea of ancient Japan and also futuristic Japan while also sort of spotlighting all this culture. It showed a real like high level approach to this. And I think it genuinely got a lot of people excited. And you can still, if you wade into the YouTube comments on that video, there are people who are still like, wow, I was so excited for this. Mm, Totally. And like when I rewatched that video, and I think it is worth rewatching that handover ceremony in the lead up to these Olympics, because my overwhelming emotion coming from it was actually just sadness, kind of a sense of loss, I think, because it was really well done. Um, I think it really showed what Japan wanted to be and how excited and prepared they were going to be for these Olympic Games. But as we stand now on mid to late July 2021 with the Games about to start, um, it feels like we're a very, very long way from that vision um, with so much of the Olympics now derailed by the COVID-19 pandemic. If only we could return to that warp pipe, you know, (laughs) the comfort of, of seeing Abe emerge from that pipe. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Deep Dive. Part two of this look at the long road to the Olympic Games will be coming out Friday this week when Patrick will join me once again to look at what happened after that handover ceremony and how the Olympics were derailed by the COVID-19 pandemic. Also, a heads up, the Japan Times will be running a live blog throughout the opening ceremony of the Games this Friday, which will continue all the way through until the end of the Olympics. Check it out on the Japan Times website to keep up to date with all the latest happenings from this very, very strange Olympic Games. And for regular listeners of Deep Dive, I'm sorry it's taken so long to return to making episodes. While I was off on my break, I managed to break both my arms in a cycling accident, which I'm still recovering from. Uh, We'll try and get back to weekly episodes as soon as possible. Thank you very much for your patience. Thank you for listening. And as always, Potskare Sama. (laughs) 